0: However, after the camp's liberation, the dividing walls were knocked down, the holes were put in the ceiling. However, the new door was not removed. I think here there are three main points that have to be made. The first of these is that we are looking at a clear deception. As I have shown, the gas chamber is shown off to tourists as being in its original state, even though the museum officials know better. Dr. Pieper appears to be very nonchalant about the fact that changes were made after the war. But if it isn't such a big deal, then why hide it from the tourists? And that's not all. In May of 1992, British historian David Irving was fined by a German court for telling a meeting in Munich exactly what you've just heard Dr. Pieper tell you. In fact, Pieper was even called as a defense witness. But the judge wouldn't allow him to testify, even though it might have cleared Irving. Once again, I'll say, if this is not such a big deal, why fine somebody for saying it? Our next point is the gas chamber is no longer valid as proof in its present state. It is not a proof of homicidal gassings unless it can be shown that, at some time during the war, this building had four holes in the ceiling and no dividing walls, during the time the Germans were operating the camp. Which brings us to our final point, the reconstruction itself. With the information we now have, we can say that there are two different views of the gas chamber reconstruction. The first one, the official view, holds that the Soviets and Poles created a gas chamber in an air raid shelter that had been a gas chamber. The revisionist view holds that the Soviets and Poles created a gas chamber in an air raid shelter that had been an air raid shelter. So, how do we know which one is correct? Well, obviously the burden of proof is on those who say that there was a gas chamber at one time in that building. Do they have any evidence at all to support that claim? In my tenure as a Holocaust revisionist, I'm sure if there was any, I'd have seen it. I can also add that those questionable four holes in the roof of the building are not detectable in any of the aerial photograph blow-ups that I've seen. To get to the truth of this matter, there are some other pertinent questions that can be asked. If there was at one time a functioning gas chamber in this building, Why was its operation halted, especially if the Nazis were running Auschwitz as an extermination center? Well, Dr. Pieper has an answer for that one, too. In an essay published in the Polish book Auschwitz, Pieper writes that exterminations were moved to new gas chambers in the Auschwitz-Birkenau complex because it had become too difficult to keep the gas chamber at the Auschwitz main camp a secret from the inmates. This has apparently become part of official Auschwitz lore because it's something that Alicia repeated to me on the tour. In spite of, this crematorium was next to blocks where the prisoners lived. That's why extermination was moved to Birkenau. That's why four crematoriums with gas chambers were built in Birkenau. Now, let's be perfectly clear about this. They say that exterminations were moved to Birkenau because the gas chamber at the main camp was too close to the inmates and therefore they could know what was going on. But is this even remotely accurate? Let's refer back to our map of the main camp. Now, here's the gas chamber right there, and there's the rows of inmates' barracks. As you can see, the gas chamber is well outside of the prison compound and is hidden from view by the three SS buildings, which effectively hide it from the inmates' site. Plus, we're told that arrivals who were going to be gassed would be taken in through here, thus avoiding any and all contact with the other inmates. This was a gas chamber that could have functioned completely isolated from anybody's notice. Now this is Auschwitz-Birkenau in an Allied aerial photo from September 1944. These are the two crematoriums and gas chambers with the crematoriums above ground and an L-shaped below ground rooms that were either gas chambers or mortuaries, and here you have the rows and rows of inmates' barracks. Now the thing that becomes immediately clear is there is nothing but a barbed wire fence hiding the inmates' barracks from the gas chambers, and this over here was the Auschwitz sports field right next door to the gas chambers. And another thing to notice is not only could you see the gas chamber parallel with the barracks, but you could see diagonally to the one across the way from you. Nothing was hidden from the inmates. Another interesting thing was the train that would come up carrying the doomed inmates. You would have thousands of inmates being marched off the trains into one of these two gas chambers in full view of the entire camp. This was a spectacle that nobody at the camp could miss. They would see thousands of people marching into those buildings and nobody coming out. These were gas chambers that were not isolated from anyone, and indeed, when these aerial photographs were released in the late 70s, they contradicted many supposed eyewitness claims about how the Nazis had tried to camouflage the gas chambers at Birkenau. I spent several days here at Birkenau, and the footage I have, which is available on a separate tape, dramatically shows everything I've just been saying. Frankly, I don't think Peeper's claim holds any water. Another question that should be asked, is there any Zyklon B residue in the gas chamber knowing that cyanide gas would, in fact, leave a residue? In 1988, execution equipment expert Fred Lucher conducted forensic examinations on the gas chambers at Auschwitz to answer that question. He took samples from the four gas chambers at Birkenau, the one at the main camp, and a control sample from one of the disinfestation chambers that we know did use Zyklon B. Now, the gas chamber samples showed almost no appreciable traces, whereas the disinfestation sample literally went right off the scale. More importantly though, in 1990, the Institute of Forensic Research in Krakow decided to conduct their own forensic tests to see if they could refute Fred Lucher's findings, and they did this with Dr. Pieper's help and their own tests got back the same results. So since then, the question has not been, are there any appreciable traces of Zyklon B residue in the gas chambers, but instead, why are there not any appreciable traces? I put this question to Dr. Pieper. I asked him, why are there so few appreciable traces in the homicidal gas chambers compared to the large amounts of traces found in the disinfestation chambers? gas chamber, uh Gas cyclone B was uh, operated very short time, about 20, uh, 30 minutes during 24 hours. And in the uh, disinfection rooms it was it operated uh, the whole uh, day and night. And such was the procedure of using gas. And, is infection also Now let's be perfectly clear about what Dr. Pieper is saying. I ask him, why is the residue count high in the delousing chambers but low in the homicidal ones? And he answers, because the delousing chambers were used, quote, day and night, whereas the homicidal ones were used, quote, about 20, 30 minutes during 24 hours, which would account for roughly one gassing a day. Now, not only does this contradict the eyewitness testimonies, which speak of repeated homicidal gassings going on day and night, but Dr. Pieper also manages to contradict himself, because later on in the interview I ask him how many groups of people a day would be gassed, and he too speaks of repeated gassings. Um, How many groups of people every day were gassed in crema 2 and 3? Do you know? It's difficult to say, because there were periods when uh, gas chambers were used every day, and uh, several actions repeated, gazing, burning, gazing, burning, and so on. We have to ask this question. Could the high death rate at the camp have occurred if the gas chambers were used only 20-30 minutes during 24 hours as Pieper initially claimed they were? In a New York Times article about the aforementioned book by Jean-Claude Pressac, written to refute revisionists, New York Times writer Richard Bernstein writes that, according to Pressac, it would have been necessary for the extermination rooms to have been emptied of corpses and refilled with new victims every half hour or so as would have been necessary for such a large number of victims. In other words, he realizes that for such a high death rate, multiple gassings every day at an extremely fast pace would have been necessary. So what we have here is a contradiction. The concept of limited use of the chambers could conceivably explain the lack of residue, but limited gassing contradicts eyewitnesses and makes the high gassing death rate technically impossible. Also, the concept of limited gassing makes ridiculous the idea of German intent to completely wipe out the entire Jewish population. Literally, to support one part of the Holocaust story, Pieper ends up jeopardizing another. Unfortunately, what passes for Holocaust history has become such a complex balancing act of rationalizations. This is why its proponents prefer you not ask too many questions, like the ones concerning Zyklon-B. And what about the gas itself? We are shown many canisters of Zyklon-B gas as proof of the final solution, but apart from delousing, which everyone agrees on, and homicidal gassings, which the Auschwitz officials maintain, did the gas have any other uses? But also for the uh, disinfection of the buildings, so there was such uh, Was it routine for the buildings to be disinfected? From time to time, such uh, actions were carried out but, uh, to remove the uh, Now let's recap again. We now know that Zyklon B gas was used to delouse clothes, to disinfect buildings, and if you'll remember the calculations of Holocaust supporter Jean-Claude Pressac, over 95% was used for disinfection, with only 5% or less used for homicide. This seems like a great amount of effort on the part of the Germans to preserve the health of people who were meant to be exterminated. And I think at this point we can move on. We return now to our job of trying to decide between the two alternate views of the reconstructed gas chamber. Is it a fake or a faithful reconstruction? One very important question is this, can we trust the Soviets to have faithfully reconstructed the gas chamber? Since there is no wartime proof of there ever having been four holes in the ceiling, or of any gas chamber usage, we literally have to take the Soviets and Poles at their word that they simply returned the four holes to where they had originally been and reconstructed instead of fabricated a gas chamber. If we're going to try to establish Soviet intent, we need to look at what precedent there is concerning Soviet truthfulness regarding the Holocaust story. Do the Soviets have a history of fabricating Holocaust evidence or using deception to support the concept? Well, as we've already shown, the Soviets quite brazenly exaggerated the figures of dead at Auschwitz by at least four times. But was this simply a well-intentioned error on their part? We are told in the Auschwitz guidebook, and also by other sources, that the reason it was so difficult to ascertain the number of victims at Auschwitz was because the Nazis had destroyed the appropriate records. This concept was also repeated to me by Dr. Pieper. Who initially came up with the figure of 4 million people dying in Auschwitz? It was uh, estimated <laughs> uh, by uh, some of the commission for the University of Auschwitz. because of the fact that the Nazis destroyed the documents of the But in fact, The Auschwitz camp death records were held by the Soviets, not released until 1989. These documents were not destroyed by the Nazis. I think we can assume that during all those years the Soviets were handing out their exaggerated death figures. They knew they had these books in their possession. We can also look at discredited charges made by the Soviets and supported by the other allies at the Nuremberg trial. The Soviets claimed that there were steam chambers for killing inmates at the Treblinka camp in Poland. Now, of course, that claim has been quietly dropped. Also dropped are the claims of electro chambers. Most interestingly, we have the Soviets at Nuremberg claiming that it was the Nazis, not the Soviets, who murdered the thousands of Polish officers in the infamous Katyn Forest massacre. These days, of course, the Soviets have admitted that they are the ones responsible, and most legitimate historians knew this all along. But at Nuremberg, the Soviets claimed that the Nazis bribed and threatened people to falsely blame the Soviets. The now discredited atrocity stories of Nazi-created shrunken heads and human skin lampshades were also exhibited as fact. And in an almost inconceivable charge, it was claimed that the Nazis exterminated Jews with an atomic bomb, also presented as fact was the story that the Nazis made soap from the bodies of Jews. Let's examine this one a little more closely. Now, the Soviets actually submitted supposed Jewish soap at the Nuremberg trial, but today Holocaust scholars like Raoul Hilberg, Yehuda Bauer, and Deborah Lipstadt agree that these accusations are groundless. But let's be more specific here. Simon Wiesenthal, perhaps one of the most recognizable names in the Holocaust arena, wrote in 1946 in a series of articles for an Austrian Jewish paper about boxes of Jewish soap. On the boxes were the initials R.I.F. Pure Jewish Fat. These boxes were destined for the Waffen SS. The wrapping paper revealed with complete cynical objectivity that this soap was manufactured from Jewish bodies. The civilized world may not believe the joy with which the Nazis and their women in the general government thought of this soap. In each piece of soap they saw a Jew who had been magically put there and had thus been prevented from growing into a second Freud, Ehrlich, or Einstein. How very fiendish! It's not hard to imagine such devilish behavior after decades of seeing two-dimensional Nazi villains in movies and on TV. The soap story has also been immortalized in William Shirer's best-selling Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, as well as in countless other Holocaust articles, books, and even school textbooks. But can we speak with such certainty about this incredible atrocity? Nowadays, those designated as Holocaust experts are as firm as Wiesenthal and Shirer regarding the soap story, except that they say it isn't true. In 1981, professor of modern Jewish history and Holocaust expert Deborah Lipstadt wrote in a letter to the Los Angeles Times that... The fact is, the Nazis never used the bodies of Jews, or for that matter, anyone else, for the production of soap. The soap rumor was prevalent both during and after the war. It may have had its origin in the cadaver factory atrocity story that came out of World War I. The soap rumor was thoroughly investigated after the war and proved to be untrue. Now that's pretty clear. And Shmuel Krakowski director of archives at Israel's Yad Vashem Holocaust Center, confirmed in a Chicago Tribune article titled A Holocaust Belief Cleared Up that historians have concluded that soap was not made from human fat. Now I have a few reasonable questions. First, has anyone told Simon Wiesenthal that he's wrong? Secondly, if there was no soap made from Jews, then that means the Nuremberg soap and the testimony about human soap at Nuremberg is wrong. Third, Deborah Lipstadt speaks of a thorough investigation of the soap story, and Shmuel Krakowski speaks of historians having concluded that the soap story is wrong. By speaking of a thorough investigation and a consensus by historians, Lipstadt and Krakowski are able to drop the soap story while at the same time affirming their faith in the soundness of establishment Holocaust history But is that faith appropriate? Not only was the soap story not thoroughly investigated and refuted after the war, but even today there is no consensus among historians and experts concerning the soap story. As recently as 1991, Village Voice columnist Nat Hentoff was still talking about having seen Jewish soap with his own eyes. And Dr. Pieper? Well, he still supports the discredited soap story. There were such uh, attempts of using human flesh, or soap, in other concentration camps, uh, Stuttgart, by Gdańsk. Mm-hmm. So that that, were, that was where it was done. There were uh, many such attempts. As you can see, the Holocaust experts prove themselves hypocrites when they tell you that there is no need to question the Holocaust story, that it has already been proven beyond question. And here I don't mean to suggest that the soap story is the only thing the experts are not in unison about. Far more importantly, even though they present a united front in support of the gas chamber concept, many of them realize that there is little documentation for it. Which brings us to the real myth of the Holocaust. The myth is that the existence and use of homicidal gas chambers is well documented. In fact, the thing that really got me interested in this subject in the first place was the lack of documentation for gas chambers presented in the standard Holocaust works and the contradictions and guesswork inherent in the evidence that was presented. Several times now we've mentioned the book by Jean-Claude Pressac. This book was published in 1989 by the famed Nazi hunting duo the Klarsfelds and heralded as a final refutation of Holocaust revisionism. In his book Pressac offers this damning condemnation of what has passed for Holocaust history among traditional historians. Pressac says that his book demonstrates the complete bankruptcy of the traditional history, a history based for the most part on testimonies, assembled according to the mood of the moment, truncated to fit an arbitrary truth, and sprinkled with a few German documents of uneven value and without any connection with one another. Also in 1989, Jewish Princeton professor and refugee from Hitler's Europe, Arno Meyer, wrote in his Holocaust book, Why Did the Heavens Not Darken, that sources for the study of the gas chambers are at once rare and unreliable. Meyer also wrote that more Jews died in Auschwitz of natural causes than by gassings or shootings, and his book angered other Holocaust experts who've called it everything from dangerous and ugly to a perversion of the holocaust. My point is, when the experts tell you that there is no room for debate about the gas chamber story, they are hiding the fact that they debate each other about it frequently. Oftentimes, the reason for a reluctance to answer hard questions about the gas chambers comes from the fact that the experts secretly realize that the gas chambers are simply not well documented and that much of the documentation we have has already been discredited. Indeed, the specter of fraudulent Holocaust evidence from the Soviets has reared its head in more current events, like the prosecution of Ukrainian-American John Demyanyuk, whose incredibly flawed war crimes conviction was based in part on faulty Soviet evidence. So, in answer to our question about precedent regarding Soviet trustworthiness, I think we've established that we can't really accept anything on faith, because evidence certified as real one year might be considered fake the next. Evidence you are told is genuine can, in fact, be a so-called reconstruction. And if the Holocaust experts themselves can't agree on what's real and what's not, then surely they prove themselves hypocrites when they insist that homicidal gassings cannot be questioned. However, lest I appear to be unfair, it should be added that our own army and propaganda department did not sit idly by and let the Soviets have all the atrocity propaganda fun. After the war, it was claimed at the Dachau camp that people were gassed. In fact, the army produced several propaganda films supporting that notion. Hanging in orderly rows were the clothes of prisoners who had been suffocated in a lethal gas chamber. They had been persuaded to remove their clothing under the pretext of taking a shower for which towels and soap were provided. Yet now it is no longer claimed that anyone ever died in a Dachau gas chamber. This is a clear case of wartime propaganda. It should also be added, in fairness, that it was the British who obtained, by torture, the confession of Rudolf Hess, Commandant to Auschwitz, before turning him over to the Soviets and Poles. This has been confirmed in a book published in 1983 titled Legions of Death, which contains the recollections of British Sergeant Bernard Clark, who brags about having tortured Hearst to get a confession out of him and of threatening his family. Which brings us back to Auschwitz. It was here, behind the building we've talked so much about, the supposed gas chamber, that Hearst was hanged for running an extermination camp, but can we say now that that was a just sentence, with the main evidence being a confession obtained by torture and a reconstructed air raid shelter? Perhaps you will answer that the sentence was still a just one, since Hearst did run an internment camp where people did indeed die in high numbers from disease and malnutrition. Yet, if you consider internment of citizens based on their race a crime worthy of hanging, then what should have been done with the American soldiers who ran our internment camps in the United States for Japanese Americans? And if you consider running a camp with such a high loss of life a crime punishable by death, what should have been done with General Eisenhower and his soldiers who ran post-World War II prison camps where anywhere from several hundred thousand to over a million Germans died from disease and malnutrition. Camps that prompted Lieutenant Ernest Fisher of the 101st Airborne Division and former senior historian of the United States Army to remark in the recent book Other Losses that starting in April 1945, the United States Army and the French Army casually annihilated about one million men, most of them in American camps. Eisenhower's hatred passed through the lens of a compliant military bureaucracy produced the horror of death camps unequaled by anything in American military history an enormous war crime. Clearly the only thing that separates Auschwitz from what the Allies did is the concept of exterminations, of genocide, of homicidal gas chambers, If you remove the exterminations from the Auschwitz equation, you are left with a tragedy, yes, but not a unique tragedy. A war crime that was duplicated by the Allies during World War II. So our question regarding the authenticity of the Auschwitz main camp gas chamber takes on an added importance. Was it a real gas chamber or a simple air raid shelter redone to look like one? And if we haven't reached a definite answer to that question in this short video, at least, hopefully, I've shown that it is a legitimate question to ask. And although there might not be any easy answers, one thing is for certain. This issue is far from over.